January 1956. American Christian missionary Jim Elliott is killed alongside four companions while trying to evangelise a remote tribe in Ecuador. Was Jim Elliott an innocent trying to improve the lives of others? Or was he reckless in his actions? Sources for this episode include Christianity.com and Bethan Global University. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 51, part two of Unknown Passage. I hope that you enjoyed the first part of this episode. Technically, it could have been its own episode, this second part, but I want to tell the stories of two missionaries who have been killed by remote tribes. Um, I want to give you a bit of value um, for your time. So I've had some not so sympathetic feedback um, for the first part about John Chow. So um, I'm glad that you found it interesting. I don't know how else to put that. Um, Now, this episode is a little bit different to John's. It takes place in a different part of the world. It's also, it happened more than 50 years before John's case, um, more than 60 years actually. So it's, it's a more vintage case. He's kind of from what I have found, I'd never heard of Jim Elliott before, but he seems to be the most martyrized. Is that right? In some sort of sickening way, Christians have turned him into a martyr. And I've read far too much Christian literature in the last kind of 24 to 48 hours for my liking um, than I ever thought I would before. And the way that they paint his story is not, (laughs) it's not how I would write his story, but He's kind of become this martyr for Christian missionaries and he was probably, although I can't find evidence of it, one of the people who inspired John Chow. So you can kind of blame Jim Elliott um, for maybe playing a part in how John Chow ended up. So um, there's slightly less details on Jim's case, but it actually surprised me how much information there was about Jim um, out there, considering this happened in the 1950s. And the photos of Jim, I when I first saw the photos before I read his case um, about two weeks ago, I thought that this was happened in the 70s or so. The photos are really good quality of Jim. Um, now, as I said, most resources on Jim Elliott are on Christian websites, Um there's really little kind of, I don't know how to put it, um, objective documentation about Jim's case. So that's why I've had to kind of use these Christian websites as a source. They seem to hold him up as some sort of martyr, um, which I disagree with, as I said in the first episode with John Chow, and I'm not kind of moving on that point of view. I would just wonder why, as I get into Jim's case, why people distance themselves from John Chow, Christian missionaries, but not from Jim Elliott. When I finish telling the story, I'd like your feedback as to why you think um, that Jim Elliott was kind of made into a martyr for Christians, but not John Chow. Um, Is it because it's more modern time um, and it wouldn't have happened if Jim Elliott had done the same you know, just a few years ago, like John Chow did. I'm not entirely sure. And before I get into Jim's case, I just want to say um, my two cats have been, I've been trying to record this for about two or three hours. Um, The Paw Patrol are looking for a BUG. I can't say it because they'll go off again. And they've been very vocal running around looking for him. 
I don't know where he is. I think he died a very painful death behind the fridge. But if you hear Cinnamon, that's a rarity because she very rarely talks in the background of this, but she's very excited tonight. So let's get into it. So Jim Elliott, he was actually born Philip James Elliott on October 8th, 1927. Um, He was actually born in Portland, Oregon, which is in the news for all the wrong reasons at the moment. Um, Now, at the time of his death, Jim Elliott, I found he was 28 and I kind of made the comparison between him and John Chow in my notes because John Chow was 26 and I don't know if this is a... males in his 20s thing. Um, I found a number of cases that I plan on doing more of these in the future and they all seem to be males in their 20s, also American males in their 20s. I'm just wondering if that's because Americans have more kind of Christian missionaries than other places or a bigger ability to travel. I'm not entirely sure. Now, Jim's parents were called Fred and Clara Elliott. Um, They had met when Clara was training to be a chiropractor, which I thought was pretty advanced for the 50s or, you know, in the four, sorry, not in the 50s. Jim was born in 1927. So that's pretty advanced if they met in the 20s, the early 20s. Um, Now his father, his family, Jim's grandfather, paternal grandfather. Um, they, the grandparents came from Scotland. That's where the similarities between, um, myself and my family and Jim Elliott end. His mother's family was Swiss and they had moved as well to the USA. Um, they had moved at the end of the 1800s and immigrated, which I think is a really interesting choice. I don't often hear about the Swiss immigrating. So I just picked these little things out that I think are interesting. Um, Now, when they met and Clara was training to be a chiropractor, which I thought was really interesting, um, his father, Fred, was a Christian missionary. So much like the story of John Chow, similar with his parents. Um, But Clara was also religious. So it was a match made in heaven. Now, um, Fred, sorry, was working as a traveling preacher um, with a group called the Plymouth Brethren Movement. So he would just go around and, you know, tell his tales to people. I'll try to be respectful. Now, soon after they met and got married, they had four children. It was Robert and then it was Herbert and then it was Jim, who was born Philip, but he used, he went by James and then obviously Jim. Um, And then Jane was their youngest. And they raised their children to be strict Christians, just like they were, but as well as that, they also encouraged their children to be adventurous, which is another comparison between John Chow um, and Jim Elliott, strict Christians, but also ones that are open to being adventurous and getting out there and doing things. Now, when Jim was growing up, he was involved in many activities in his youth. He was into wrestling. Um, he worked on the school newspaper and he was exceptionally good at acting and public speaking. He was so good at acting, in fact, that his teachers actually thought he would go into acting. I guess they were going into really the golden age of Hollywood at that time. So if he had actually done that and succeeded, it probably would have saved a lot of people a lot of heartache and you'll figure that out pretty soon. Now, his public speaking club that he was in, there was one time where Jim actually almost got expelled from his public speaking club because he wouldn't give a political speech because his belief was that Christians would should be apolitical. They should not involve themselves in politics. This went as far as 
so when World War Two was coming up and Jim was a young adult and obviously going to be the per- the perfect age to be drafted um, and conscripted, Jim was very open about the fact that he was a pacifist and when conscription was being introduced for World War II, he was fully planning to be a conscious, conscientious objector. So that's how kind of detached from politics he was and this was really due to the fact that he was a strict Christian. Now, to describe Jim, um, I as I said, the photos, you can just look them up. I thought that they were in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. They are that good quality, which is quite incredible. Um, they are coloured, the photos of him. And Jim's kind of a dish. Um, he's got a kind of, he's got kind of fair hair. He looks tall. He's rugged. He's in shape. Um, there's one photo of him shirtless, you know, holding a fish up, which is not a big fish. So it's, it's not really impressive, but he's kind of got this rugged all American look, which I think really plays into the fact that he ended up with this martyr status, whether or not kind of you agree with that. So Jim Elliott in adulthood, he went to Wheaton College, which is in Wheaton, Illinois. And it was here that he would meet his future wife, who would become quite a prominent figure in the Christian community um, up until her death recently, um, Elizabeth Howard. Now, in early adulthood, Jim developed an interest in working as a missionary, just like his father did. And his interest really fell in working in remote tribes, particularly in South America and India. In fact, his main passion kind of fell in India, which you wonder if he had followed that, whether or not um, his story would have worked out the way it did. He was interested in being one of the first people to be able to scribe and write down a remote tribal language. Um, And he attended a training session over a summer where he learned to do this. And he learned to do this alongside a former missionary who had worked with the Quechua people. Now, these people, this tribe, there are so many different tribes across, remote tribes across South America because it's such a huge continent. Um, And they are all distinct in their characteristics. So this particular one that this missionary had worked with, they're they're really all over South America now, but they originated in Peru. Um, and this Quechua people, I couldn't find how to pronounce it. I'm so sorry. Um, I looked everywhere. There are significant populations now living in Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, and Argentina. Now that's not the tribe that Jim Elliott would end up working with because the missionary told him of a particular tribe in Ecuador, um, which Jim had not heard of, which fascinated him and really paved the way for his ultimate demise. Um, These were called the Huarani um, tribe, which are also called the Orca, um, A-U-C-A. This is the tribal word um, for savage, which probably tells you a lot. Now, this missionary told him of this Huarani tribe who are Indigenous tribes to Ecuador. We've been to Ecuador before um, for Maria and Marina's case. And if you haven't listened to that, please listen to it because you learn a lot about Ecuador in that in that particular episode. Now, this tribe is incredibly dangerous. They're one of the most kind of violent 
to outsiders in South America, very much like the people of North Sentinel Island that we talked about on the John Chow episode. Now, during this time, again, much like John Chow's family did, Jim's family really tried to talk Jim into staying in the USA when working as a missionary in his church back home. I think they really saw that this could be quite dangerous, his interest, much like John Chow's. Their comparisons, people do compare the two, and I had never heard of Jim Elliott before researching in-depth John Chow's story. So in 1947, Jim went to Mexico for the first time, um, to South America, Central America, I suppose, on this very short missionary trip, which was him dipping his toe into the world of missionary work. And in the summer of 1950, Jim did linguistics training um, because, again, he wanted to write down, be the first person to write down a tribal language and be able to I mean, that's a pretty incredible thing when you think about it. I've never really thought about it until researching this. But this training camp was in Oklahoma and it was called Camp Wycliffe. After its completion, he started really planning to go to Ecuador to kind of integrate into this tribe. And I guess he really did go about it the right way. If there is a right way to go about it, he was not like John Chow. Now, Jim got his passport and he and his friend Bill, who was also a missionary, were fully in and planning to go to Ecuador. But Bill ended up getting engaged and he decided to stay behind. Um, And Jim, because he wasn't going to go by himself to do this and to live there and work with them, um, this trip had to be postponed because his friend got married. So Jim then spent the winter and spring of 1951 working with a friend of his whose name was Ed McCulley. Um, and this was in Illinois. So he's back in Illinois. They were running a radio program, um, which was a Christian radio program, um, preaching to people on their Christian show. So as with his first friend, Bill, Ed McCulley um, then got engaged and he had to pull out of the trip they were planning So again, Jim was left without a mate because his mates were all getting married. Um, Where are these guys? I swear they don't exist anymore. But Jim was dead set. He had to find someone who was a bachelor, who was not intending on getting married and was planning on going down there and actually spending a number of years, you know, um, in Ecuador and doing this work. Someone who was 100% committed He luckily found that person and his name was Pete Fleming. Now, he was a graduate of the University of Washington. He had a degree in philosophy or as my friend who has a degree in philosophy calls it a degree in thinking. Um, Now, Pete and Jim were living in opposite sides of the country and they connected through their missionary work and they regularly wrote to each other um, planning this trip and Jim was really almost kind of not indoctrinating him, but really nagging him. Um, So by September um, of 1951, he had convinced Pete Fleming to go with him to Ecuador. Um, According to this Christian university website, um, Bethany Christian University, I think, um, website that I was using for this, it said um, that Jim convinced him that his calling was in Ecuador. So between this time meeting Pete and planning it and going to Ecuador, um, Jim 
visited friends back on the east coast of the USA. Um, his future wife, Elizabeth, was still there, so he went out to visit her and, you know, I guess say his goodbyes to people not realising that it would be his last time in the USA. He did write a journal just like John Chow, but, you know, in the 50s that was kind of more the way to do it. And he wrote in this that he planned on marrying Elizabeth, um, but he was really torn because he really wanted to go to Ecuador as well. Um, and he's pl- he was called to go to Ecuador without Elizabeth. Um, now, Jim then returned to Portland, um, his hometown, in November of 1951 and began his final preparations to leave the USA for Ecuador. So the Huarani tribe, they're really interesting. They're, I find tribes so interesting how they don't know other tribes across the world exist, but they have a lot of similarities. I don't know if that's just, you know, part of being human, but there's a really good documentary. If you write, I'll embed it on the website page, actually. If you write in Huarani tribe, um, H-U-A-O-R-A-N-I, um, doco into YouTube, there's a really good documentary about them that goes for, I think, about 45 minutes. Um, I got about halfway through and it had them, one guy wearing a a basically a jacket made out of monkey heads and they were barbecuing a bunch of monkeys. Um, I couldn't really get further than that. Um, but that's the way they live. So, you know, that's entirely up to them. I just, I just can't watch it. Um, cause I love monkeys and some of the animals that they were killing, but that's part of who they are. So the Hurani tribe have been around, um, for thousands of years since the dawn of time, um, in the Amazonian region of Eastern Ecuador. It's amazing because they actually weren't discovered until the 1940s. They, the world didn't know they existed until a group of employees that worked for Shell Oil. Because Ecuador, I think about 70% of their their revenue for the company, um, for the country comes from oil. That's why these tribes are being driven out and their land is being minimised every every year. It's horrible. Um, but Shell Oil actually went in there in the 1940s um, to drill in the area for oil and very much like Indiana Jones because this tribe is really reminds me of Indiana Jones. Um, I don't think it's the last crusade. I think it's the Temple of Doom. Um, the one with the famous one with the ball rolling and the tribes with the, with the um, blow, the poison darts. They're very similar to that, um, to me anyway, but that's maybe a silly comment. I don't know, but they were driven back. They were probably shocked to realize that this very ferocious tribe were living there. Um, and they were driven back by them and they often referred to them for a long time as savages until they realized what their actual name was. Now, Nowadays, the tribe, a lot of people, including the documentary filmmaker who was able to go in and film this documentary that I watch, they're able to make contact with them and it's quite incredible really how far they've come. Um, They kind of accept that the outside world is out there. They don't want to be a part of it. They think that most of the outside world is dangerous, but they understand that there are people out there now. But people have come to realise that the Hurani tribe they have this language that is unlike anywhere else in the world. It's most languages can be extracted from another language. English is a Germanic language, 
But the Hurani tribe speak a language which is called Wow. You pronounce it Wow. It's W-U-A-O. And it's the most one of the most unique languages in the world. But today, actually, the Hurani tribe actually speak a fair amount of Spanish. They've picked up from people, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. Now, the Hurani tribe are located in a part of eastern Ecuador. We've talked about Ecuador a lot, so refer to the Maria and Marina episode if you want to learn more about Ecuador on the whole. Um, they are located between the Curarai and Napo rivers, um, and their area that they're kind of designated spans about 120 miles wide and 100 miles north to south lengthwise. But as everything good is destroyed by the modern world, oil exploration and logging is chipping away at where they live more and more every year. Now, the Hurani believe that the the rainforest and the forests of their area are their entire world um, and everything comes from that. And really, they've they've been able to survive all this time with what the forest gives them. So it's really amazing. They believe that there's no distinction between the physical and spiritual worlds and spirits are present throughout the world. Now, before they were discovered and realised that there was an outside world, they believed that the whole world was covered in forests. Um, and the rainforest, as a result of that, is the basis of their their ethos, their belief system. The forest is home, it provides everything they need and everything outside their forest is unsafe to them. Hunting is part of their life. It's how they eat, it's how they survive, it's how they build things. They are incredible at hunting. I actually found through my research that they've evolved to the point where they now use rifles because of the outside world, but I wonder how they get the the things that they need to make those. But as I said with Indiana Jones, the reason I said that is because they use this thing called a blowgun. Now, it's not as small as like the poison dart things in Indiana Jones. These blowguns are between 12 and 15 feet long. You should look up a picture of them and it's kind of a skill to be able to blow this poison out of it. It's how they ethically kill animals to then eat them and use their skin and things like that. They believe that that is the ethical way to do it. Um, and they also use spears, but they generally just kill the animals with a blowgun. But I don't know if this is, to me, that's not really ethical because they kind of suffocate to death from the toxicity of the poison. But, you know, um, now the creatures that they eat, as I said, are monkeys. I don't want to talk about that. Um, birds. And they eat like what looks like almost parrots. I don't know what the equivalent in Ecuador is. They do not believe in eating land-based predators or birds of prey. Um, they're kind of spiritual to them as well as snakes, anacondas and jaguars are really spiritual to them. Um, and they're never hunted as a result. And they also will not eat deer because they believe that deer's eyes look similar to human eyes. So they're not cannibals, therefore they don't want to eat deer. I, I really do understand that actually. Now, I found this website called Minority Rights. Um, there's quite a lot that write about how we can help um, these tribes retain their environment and their, you know, habitat. Minorityrights.com says that the population of the Hurani is around 1,300 now, but there's other estimations that go up to 4,000. 4, so they can't really do a head count. Um, they span quite a large area, um, 
but because they're being chipped away at their environment more and more, um, it's putting a dent in their population. Now, in 1990, the Hurani actually, it was a landmark decision. They won the rights to their reserve that they live on. Um, But there's been all this government bullshit where this protected zone is now kind of being tapped into because oil of course, and money is worth more than these people. So they're being forced onto smaller and smaller parcels of land. Um, Now, they do understand, as I said, that there is an outside world now. They kind of do accept that people will come in. You do have to build their trust. But as I get into Jim's story, Jim Elliott is the most famous name associated with the Harani. And I can't believe I didn't know about him before this episode. He's famous. He kind of paved the way for people to know more about them. Um, he wanted to be the first to to gain their trust. And as much as it didn't go to plan, I can kind of concede that there are reasons why he's not a martyr. I I don't know how to put it. I don't I don't like anybody going and trying to kind of infiltrate. But if I'm going to compare John Chow and Jim Elliott, I really can't. Um, but I don't believe in evangelizing, um, which is what Jim Elliott was trying to do. So I can't honestly like sympathize um, when you put yourself into that. But because they only knew about the Harani from the 1940s, Jim Elliott was one of the first people to learn about it. And he learned about it from that missionary at that linguistics training camp, which makes me think, even though I can't find the answer, that missionary must have been either heard about it from one of the first people who ever discovered them from Shell Oil. It's it's kind of amazing. Um, But even today, the Harani overall do continue to reject uh, modern society, which good for them, and to isolate themselves more as their land is taken away from them, they are moving deeper and deeper into the rainforest. So now I'm going to talk about Jim Elliott a little bit um, and his story in Ecuador, but I do want to say there is <laughs> there is a documentary, so the only documentaries about Jim Elliott that are out there are created by Christian networks. Most of the literature about Jim Elliott is created by Christian networks. Now, this group called Vision Video, I believe, made this animated cartoon, which is 35 minutes long, called The Jim Elliott Story, Torchlighters. So they're really martyrizing him. Um, I can't imagine children watching this cartoon. It's just a really strange thing to me. Um, But yeah, maybe... (laughs) I'm not going to watch it, but maybe you watch it and let me know what you think. So now that I've told you a little bit about the Hurani tribe and their relationship with nature and the rainforest and how they've lived for thousands of years, I'm going to talk about five people um, who didn't believe that was good enough. So Jim Elliott and his friend, his good friend Pete Fleming, finally set off for their ill-fated trip to Ecuador on February 2nd, 1952. They actually took a ship down to Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador. It took it took 18 days. They traveled from San Pedro, California, which we've been to before. That was where Patrick McDermott set off for his ill-fated boat trip, um, whether you, or not you believe that that was ill-fated or not. 
So 18 days later, they arrived in Ecuador um, on February 21st, 1952, and their sole purpose was to evangelize first the Quechua um, Indians, as they were called in Ecuador, and then to move on to evangelizing the Horani tribes that we've talked about once they kind of gained their trust. They initially stayed in Quito for a little bit, the capital, and then they moved closer to the jungle um, where the Horani tribe live in eastern Ecuador. And Jim and Pete took up residence at a mission station where other missionaries were living. And not long after that, Ed McCulley, who had kind of pulled out of the initial trip with Jim, joined them. He was now married to his new wife. On October 8th, 1953, Jim and Elizabeth, his fiancée, who was back in the US, she had joined him in Ecuador. They couldn't live without each other and they got married in Quito, Ecuador. Ed and Mary Lou McCulley, um, Ed's newlywed wife, were the witnesses at their wedding. It was a very kind of simple wedding, um, obviously. Now, the couple took a brief honeymoon. They went to Panama, which we've been to before on the podcast, and Costa Rica, which we also have as well, before returning to their missionary duties in Ecuador. In 1955, on February 27th, Jim and Elizabeth had their only child, a daughter called Valerie. Now, in 1955 also, Jim Elliott and his new family, um, they kind of like hooked up, I guess, with other missionaries that they had met um, while doing work in Ecuador, all American missionaries. And they, this group decided, Jim and four other missionaries who I'll talk about in a minute, decided that they were going to join up and make contact with the Orcas, which means savages um, in in their tribal language in Ecuador. Um, This is where the Hurani tribe. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the other four missionaries because I do want to paint them as human beings, you know. Um, And I did feel really sad when I was reading about them. I had to look them up individually. And they do have Wikipedia pages and other information out there. They all have been martyrized by the church, um, whether you agree with that or not. So other than Jim, the first one was Ed McCulley, who I just talked about. He had finally arrived down in Ecuador with Mary Lou uh, McCulley, his newlywed wife. Ed was 28 and it's so young, but all of these men had, you know, multiple children by this age. It's such a different time back then. So Ed and Mary Lou, um, by this stage in 1956, had two children. Um, and at the time of Ed's death, Mary Lou was actually pregnant with their third. She was eight months pregnant. And you, when you hear about how they died, you can't believe that someone can handle that amount of grief at that kind of heavily pregnant stage. It's, it's unbelievable. So the next person was Roger Udarian. He was a 31-year-old from Montana in the USA, living and working as a missionary in Ecuador. He was married to his wife, Barbara, and they had two children as well. Now, the next one was Pete Fleming, who I talked about, who initially made the trip down with Jim um, from the US. He was 27 at the time of his death, and he was from Washington, as I said earlier. He was married at the time of his death. So after Jim married um, his wife, it kind of inspired Pete to 
write to a woman that he was in love with back in the US to propose and she joined him um, and got married in Ecuador. Her name was Olive. They had a really tragic short time together. Um, It made me really sad. So Olive had two miscarriages in her very short time being married to Pete Fleming. And at the time of his death, she had had you know, a lot of physical and mental trauma and they were still together, but she'd gone back to the USA to recuperate with her family. So she wasn't in Ecuador and had been through this tragic two miscarriages. And then her husband is speared to death. It's unbelievable. Now, the final person other than Jim um, was a a man named Nate Saint, if you believe it, his name's Nathaniel Saint. He was their pilot that they would use, who they had kind of met um, down in Ecuador. He was from Pennsylvania. He was 32. He was pretty sexy. If you look up pictures of him, he looks kind of ahead of his time, real trendy. There's pictures of him kind of posing with his plane and things like that. He was 32. He was married to a lady called Marjorie and they had three children. All of these families were living down in Ecuador and working as missionaries. So these five men, um, Jim, Ed, Roger, Pete and Nate, they decided that they were going to make contact with the Hurani using Nate's Piper PA-14 plane that he had. He was a pilot in Ecuador, so he was a good person to add to their team. So initially what they did was they used a loudspeaker to speak words that they had, tribal words that they had learned that this tribe used to speak to them from the loudspeaker to kind of make them familiar with them, make them not be afraid. They also lowered this basket down with different foods and gifts um, for the tribes. And they were kind of receptive. They would take the gifts from this basket and slowly they decided they were building their trust. Now, they were flying into this area, but after a few months of doing this and trying to build their trust, the five men decided that they were going to live just about a mile away from this Hurani village where they were making contact with this group. Um, So they built this riverside base where they would live, the five men, um, and they were, this is kind of the beginning of the end for them because the Hurani eventually started to approach them. um, And one of them who they called George, but Later on, they found out his real name was Nain Kiwi. Um, They actually gave him a plane ride in Nate's plane, like how he would have been, like, imagine his mind being blown, this person who only just probably 10 years ago found out there was an outside world and now you're seeing an aeroplane. It would be truly unbelievable to them. Now, these new things would be their downfall ultimately. So I guess the five guys really got ahead of themselves with these encounters um, and they were planning on getting even closer to the Hurani tribe and entering their tribe, which any kind of idiot I think can see that that's a bad idea. And while I do sympathise with them, they made these choices um, and they weren't going there to learn about them like David Attenborough um, and or someone from National Geographic. They were going there to evangelise Jesus Christ to them and there's a difference. Um, now, Nain Kiwi, who they called George, he was the one who got the aeroplane ride and he must have been a shifty character because 
even though he knew that the five men had good intentions towards, mostly good intentions towards the rest of the group, um, he actually went back to his tribe and lied to them. From everything I can find, he went back and told them that they had bad intentions. I don't know what the fuck he was thinking, but you can see that no matter where in the world, no matter how remote a tribe, there's still an asshole in every group. Now, these men plan to get closer to the group and really they didn't manage to because up to 10 Horani warriors, most sources say between 6 and 10, ended up preempting the men's arrival into the tribe and approaching the men. Um, the five men were speared to death from a distance, actually. I had to kind of hunt for that information, how they died. The Hurani tribe's men essentially thought that they were there to take them over and understandably um, they threw their spears and speared them to death. Um, it's I'll go into the details in a minute. Now, Jim Elliott, he was the first killed and it's it's kind of fate because he was the one that kick-started all this. He and Pete Fleming, his mate who had gone down there with him initially, um, they were trying to kind of do a friendly greeting to the tribe um, and what happened was they they basically showed them pictures Um I found one source that said that they showed pictures to the tribe um, of things that they had, you know, they were just showing photographs to them. And the tribe flipped, the two guys that had approached them flipped out because as with a lot of tribes, including Aboriginals, um, they don't like pictures being taken of them because they believe that, you know, it captures evil um, in them. And they really flipped out. They thought that it was like the devil's work and they attacked them. Now, Jim's body was found downstream after a search party was called. Um, and ultimately the other men were found as well. Ed McCulley was found way later. He was way further downstream. Now, what had happened was when they started freaking out, um, Jim Elliott reached for the gun um, that he carried on him I don't know why he had it because he never intended on using it. He had said that he would not kill someone who, quote, did not know Jesus to save himself from being killed, unquote. So he reached for the gun. He could have saved himself, but he couldn't shoot them. And he allowed himself to be speared to death, essentially. Um, each of the men had said they would not kill an orca. They kind of just allowed themselves to be killed. Pete Fleming, he was speared by a tribesman called Chemo. Um, now, later on, <laughs> these tribes were actually converted to Christianity, if you believe it, um, whether enforced or not. And this man was one of the first later converts to Christianity. Roger Udarian, he was speared while he was trying to get back um, to his radio to Radio Shell, which was working locally, um, finding oil. He was trying to radio them because he knew they were close for help and he was speared to death while doing it. Um, McCulley, he was the fourth of the five to be speared to death. He was killed by a young tribes person um, called Minke. Um, he, afterwards being speared, he was also mutilated with a machete because he was trying to fight back essentially. Um, now their story went worldwide. It was huge. Actually, I wouldn't know it. It was the fifties. I wonder if my parents would know, but they were still pretty young. Um, and it reached all four corners of the globe. 
Life magazine wrote a 10-page article um, which has an amazing headline, which I love, and it's go ye and preach the gospel, five do and die, unquote. That was back in the days of journalism when they just straight up told you what happened in the headline. So pretty much soon after their deaths, the five missionaries were martyred. Um, According to Bethany Christian University or Christian Global University, which I found a source for this, they have on their timeline that the missionaries were martyred quote, for sharing the gospel with the orcas, unquote. So after the death of the five American missionaries um, by the Huarani tribe in Ecuador, the bodies were returned to the USA to their various places of resting. It's actually interesting what happened after um, with a number of their family members who continued their work. So maybe the most famous is Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott. She only died in 2015. After Jim's death, um, Elizabeth and Valerie returned back to the USA for a couple of years, um, obviously to kind of deal with the loss. Valerie was not even one year old when Jim died. In 1958, they returned to Ecuador and they managed to live with the tribe that killed Jim Elliott for two whole years. She got so close to them and managed to make such friendly contact that they gave her a tribal name, which was Gikari Huo, which means woodpecker. She actually worked with them until 1963. And then her and Valerie, who was, you know, a young girl at the time, returned um, to the USA. And she went on to have a very interesting life with the number of things that she did. She worked on radio. She worked at a university. She was a writer. Um, she was a stylist for the Bible, which I don't fully understand. Um, She actually remarried twice more. And um, when she died, she was married to her third husband in 2015. Their daughter, Valerie, from all I can find, was the only child that Elizabeth ever had. And that was with Jim Elliott. Um, And she had eight children, apparently. Now, according to Bethany Global University, my new favourite source for information, They wrote in 1960, quote, after Elizabeth's time with the Orcas, the tribe accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour, unquote. So apparently because you say that it happened, it happened, um, not because it's been forced on them or anything like that. Mary Lou McCulley, um, whose husband, she kind of was the third, Ed McCulley, her husband, um, she and him, had joined Jim down there, um, uh, Pete, Jim, and then Ed. Um, She eventually actually also returned to Ecuador um, and her and her children lived in Quito, the capital, for six years. They ran a home for missionary children. She also ultimately returned to America. Um, She went on to continue to live in Washington um, State and she never remarried. Um, She never got over his death, Ed's death, and she died in 2004. So Nate Saint, the kind of hot pilot, his sister Rachel actually went back to Ecuador for him to continue the missionary work. According to Bethany Global University, this resulted in many of the natives becoming Christians, including the natives that had killed her brother, Nate, um, whether you believe that or not. So they're all very forgiving people. Now, 
Nate and his wife had had three children, I believe, and their eldest son, whose name is Steve Saint, he spent a lot of time as a child um, working with the Huarani tribe um, as a, you know, as a child of a missionary in Ecuador. He unbelievably was baptised by Minke. If you remember that name, that is the tribesperson from the Huarani who had killed his father, Nate Saint, but was later converted to Christianity. Now, as of 2006, Steve Saint um, still works with the Hurani people and travels around the world preaching the gospel, um, often accompanied by Min K, the man who killed his father. Um, this is all very not like how I was raised, so it's very hard for me to digest this kind of information. Um, but forgiveness kind of is at the core of Christianity and religion. Um, I'm just late to the game, I think. Marjorie Saint, Nate's widow. Um, she remarried. She also died in 2004. And I do not know what happened to Olive Fleming or Barbara Udarian, the other widows um, of the men who were killed. In 1991, a school was opened in Denver, Colorado. This is called the Jim Elliott Christian School. Um, so I think you can only be Christian to go there. In 1997, um, the Jim Elliott Christian High School was opened in California. So this guy has quite a following still in the Christian community, you know, over 60 years after his death. Um, in 2002, there was a documentary on top of the one that I talked about earlier, the cartoon um, that was made about this whole thing called Beyond the Gates of Splendor and a musical was made in 2003 based on the love story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And this is called Love Above All. Now, I don't think it got a very big run because it only was staged in Singapore, which this whole thing is really confusing for me. Um, now, according to Christianity.com, quote, during his life, Jim Elliott longed for more people to become missionaries. In his death, however, he probably inspired more people to go to other countries to share the love of Jesus than he could ever ha could have in life, unquote. So, I mean, I can't really argue with them. It seems like he has inspired a lot of people. Um, I myself have not shared the love of Jesus Christ traveling at all. Um, I've probably shared the complete opposite. I have no idea. It kind of, I don't think Jim Elliott or any of these men or women would have enjoyed any of the travel stories that I have. <laughs> but I want to wrap up with some questions that Christianity.com poses at the end of the Jim Elliott page that they have. It is titled, Make It Real. And the questions are as follows. And then I'm going to pose my own questions to wrap up. So their questions are questions to make you dig a little deeper and think a little harder. The first one is that Jim desired to serve God as a missionary. How do you desire to serve God? The second one is Jim chose not to use his gun to protect himself when attacked by the orcas. Why? What would you have done and why? Unquote. The third one is Jim's wife and daughter went to live with the orcas after Jim was killed. Can you imagine choosing to live in the orca village after such tragedy? Unquote. Now, I want to say, I want you to go on this page. I'm going to link it on the website and I want you to read the fucking disgusting way that this website portrays this, this tribe. It's 
fucking grotesque and I don't care if I'm going to hell for saying it. The entire way that it is written, these people are going to hell if they truly believe that this is how it went down. It is written like these people did nothing wrong and that these these tribes people were just primitive animals who attacked them for no good reason. It never once brings up any of the fact that they were encroaching on their land. It's just so Oh, can you tell I'm not religious because I don't like being preached to, whether it's in popular culture, the way it's happening at the moment. I'm not going to be offended because you tell me I have to be offended. I'm not going to cancel someone because you tell me to cancel someone. And I'm not going to, on the other side of things, dig a little deeper as they put it or think a little harder for questions. My questions would be, why were they there? trying to jam this down their throats. And I can kind of tell from your feedback, my listeners so far, that you're really on the same side, um, especially since the feedback that I got from the John Chow episode is pretty much like, is there anything worse than evangelists? And I'm not really sure um, if there is really. I mean, these people had their own spirituality. They had their own religion. It was the world around them what do they call it in Wicca or paganism? It's like, you know, Gaia, Aya, something. They had their own. We don't need, not everyone needs your version of God. I've had friends who have been in Alcoholics Anonymous and I was talking with Mark about this the other day because the steps are based on it's very quote-unquote churchy, as one of my friends put it. They are based on religion. But as one of my friends who's been in AA for a long time and has stayed on the path said, even though they do refer to God in the teachings and the literature for AA, you can just replace God with whatever your version of God is. And I that really like is really memorable for me, him saying that, because you can just replace it. They're not telling you you have to believe in God. They're just trying to give you a, you need to have a higher power of some description to kind of lead you through life. But to these people, that higher power is not the environment. It's not, you know, they just discount everybody's beliefs except their own, um, you know, Native Americans and their belief and, you know, their spirituality. To them, these American missionaries that I've told you about, they would need God, you know, and that's, that's just so, I just, I I really struggle to have any sympathy. Um, I don't like the question that they wrote about Jim not using a gun to protect himself and what would you have done? It's, it's almost like guilting people for thinking that they would defend themselves and how could you, and the final one is how could you live with these people after what they did? They did what they did after months of what I see as goading um, by these people. These people who not only did they not belong in this tribe and had no right to get close to them, but at the time, unfortunately, the tribe was not protected by the Ecuadorian government. They had no right to be in Ecuador doing this. You can't just go around the world preaching like your trash in other countries. Like this happens all the time, you know, and I'm, I'm quite frankly sick of it. So 
I don't know how to wrap this up. I do feel for them. Um, but then I stopped kind of having a lot of empathy when I realized that they just went back and continued to force this Christianity conversion. It's almost like conversion therapy. It's almost like gay conversion therapy. I will, you know, indoctrinate you into this and you will not be gay. Otherwise, you know, God will strike you down. These people before these people came and tried to jam Jesus Christ down their throats, they didn't even know there was an outside world for very long before that. It had maybe been just over a decade before that they had been discovered and suddenly you are there kind of talking about this thing that they couldn't possibly comprehend. I mean, Jim... And the other four men didn't even get close enough to be able to do that. And it's it's very kind of reminiscent of John Chow. It's John Chow is almost a modern version of this. Um, I I find Jim and the other four a lot more human than John Chow. I think John Chow was a self serving wanker, um, and someone wrote it really well on Instagram. Um, just this kind of self-serving nature of all of this. But I am going to wrap it up. But I, I ask you to like email me or go on Instagram, tell me if I'm wrong, indoctrinate me into the Church of Jesus Christ. But, you know, I will say when when I was when I was a kid, I did believe in all these things. My gran was very religious, my mum's mum. We were all christened. Um, I'm Anglican, which is the Church of England. I grew up, I loved Sunday school. I voluntarily went. I didn't have to go. I asked to go. I loved RE at school. I loved all the teachings. Um, I loved all the stories. I had all the, you know, Bible golden books. I think my mum still got them. And then just... My my journey is that the older I got and the things that I went through and the things that I saw my mum go through and people I loved go through, um, my journey, which you can't kind of sway me on, is that no one was really looking out um, for the people that I've seen go through certain things. And if they were, there was no rhyme or reason for making the person, you know, go through that. Um, I believe in the universe, the power of the universe. I believe in karma. I do believe in the power of attraction, the law of attraction. I believe, you know, in creating momentum in order to get something going, um, which very much ties into science in a way. But, you know, I don't believe all these things, but I'm interested to know what your kind of journey is with these things, um, with religion, with if you want to share it with me, feel free. If you are religious, I'm interested to know how you feel about evangelicals. Um, Don't message me if you're an evangelical, please. I don't want to hear it. Um, But if you are religious, but you are against these kinds of things, kind of, you know, reach out and tell me. I'm interested to know where the line is for you. Um those kinds of things. So I hope that you've enjoyed this, you know, two-parter on evangelicals killed by tribes. I didn't know how else to name this episode, honestly. Um, There's quite a lot more. I actually, the reason that I remembered that I wanted to do John Chow's case and then I found Jim Elliott's was because just a few weeks ago, um, there was an 
he wasn't a Christian or evangelical. He was he was just an Amazon tribal expert. Um, he was in the news a few weeks ago. He was killed by a tribe that he had studied for like 20 years in the Amazon. So, um, and then I was like, oh God, I was going to do John Chow's episode. So I thought I'd change up the pace a bit, but I might tell that guy's story at some point when more information comes out about it. But so to wrap up, visit the website. I have put up John Chow's information on the relevant episode page and I will add Jim Elliott's to the same page. Um, Give me about 24 hours after this goes up to do it. It's at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. It links off the website. Otherwise, go to patreon.com slash unknownpassagepodcast or just search on your podcast app for Patreon. Um, I've got a $2 a month tier and a $5 a month tier and you get to choose a country um, for an upcoming episode and I will find a case to cover in that country. Visit Instagram at Unknown Passage Pod um, and interact there. That's the only social media I have for the podcast. And leave a rating or review if you like the show on your podcast platform of choice. That would mean the world to me. The next episode is from my maybe number one fan. I've got to say it like Kathy Bates in Misery. I'm your number one fan. Stacy. She became a patron just over a month ago. That was my birthday present from her, which was lovely. Um, and Stacy's one's next. So stay tuned for that next, early next week.